Welcome to RevOps Corner, where we talk about how B2B SaaS companies scale through revenue operations by interviewing amazing guests and sharing what we see in the trenches every day here at Union Square Consulting. Welcome to RevOps Live number 17. We're here today to talk about revenue insights, specifically how to uncover valuable insights from your data in Salesforce and your other revenue systems present that data back to leadership in meaningful and compelling ways, and to get a seat at the table. I'm here with Joel Arnold, our VP of RevOps. Joel, thank you so much for putting this uh, together for us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Excited to dive into this with you. As always, I have Sarah Ra, our event producer. Thank you for coordinating everything and organizing this for us today. Nice to be here. I can't wait to find out more about uh, Insights. Awesome. So for anybody that's new to uh, this event, we're a revenue operations consulting firm. Um, so we talk about what we do every day. Um, we do this event as well as record this to our podcast and also publish a newsletter each week. Uh, you can get all of these on our website. Sarah's also going to share some links in uh, the Zoom. And uh, if you want, we're going to publish a newsletter on Friday about this to dive in a little bit uh, deeper, as well as to just kind of button everything up and make it concise into one place that you can read it in a few minutes. Um, Joel and I are going to talk through this topic. He's got a few talking points he wants to go through, and I'm going to ask him questions. But I want to encourage you guys to throw your questions into the chat, and we'll call on you uh, throughout the entire discussion. If nobody asks any questions, I'll just fill the time by asking mine. Um, but as you guys want, we'll call on you. Um, Sarah will also share the links to the podcast, uh, which you can access on Apple, Spotify, or as I mentioned on our website. And uh, without further ado, let's dive into it. So I'll hand it over to you, Joel, to uh, share what you want to share. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thank you very much for the introduction, Eddie. Uh, excited to dive into this topic, like I said. Uh, we've been going through the last couple of uh, conversations and really focusing on fundamentals. And I think kind of the pillar... Uh, the final pillar of the fundamentals list in RevOps is this insights piece. So um, really everybody gets into revenue operations or tries to build out a revenue operations um, organization, whether they know it or not, really to get the insights that come from it. Um, there's obviously alignments and there's systems and tools and technology and all these other things, but really the output is what you're looking for is better intelligence and better uh, mechanics of learning how to run your business more efficiently. And so we're going to talk today a little bit about the fundamentals that go into building uh, the insights that you could use if you're an early stage company. And sort of, I want to try and convince everybody here that there are, you don't have to go very far down the rabbit hole of building out your data stack or data set uh, in order to drive some pretty insightful pieces of information for your team. Um, and you can get there fairly quickly. So um, that's the premise I'd like to tee up and, and hopefully that's all right with you, Eddie. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So um, in the last couple of meetings, we've talked about what I call the revenue efficiency pyramid. Um, we can probably link to that as well. But within that, um, it, it has a fundamental underpinning of the belief that revenue operations can be uh, defined in a similar way to like a, a hierarchy of needs. So when you think about building out um, your tech stack and, and your operations, you're starting with fundamental building blocks like, um, do you have a sales methodology? Do you have a CRM, et cetera? And I think of uh, insights in the same sort of way. So 
first off, it's probably worth defining what insights are. To me, they are the combination of using data and analysis to draw out um, the non-obvious conclusions that help you drive a business. So if you think about that, um, you're kind of taking the things that you're building, meaning you're starting with the data, so you need to have a way of capturing the data, and then you need to do some analysis on that data. It's pretty straightforward. But then there's another stage where you're actually like reviewing the history of that data. You're looking for trends, you're drawing conclusions, you're crafting hypotheses, et cetera, that are going to give you um, something of value to take to your leadership. And that starts to get into the conversation of how you get a seat at the table and what value you can bring as a revenue operations leader. Joel, I've got some questions to layer into that. And uh, so first I would say like, I really love that you're touching on that revenue operations pyramid that we discussed before. Uh, really your methodology that you've, you've brought to, to the table here at Union Square Consulting. And it makes a lot of sense because we see a lot of companies, especially leaders that maybe don't understand operations as well, that are really excited about the, the shiny objects, about getting artificial intelligence and machine learning and doing all the advanced stuff. They're getting sold by these vendors that have really advanced analytics, but they don't even have the basic data structure in place to show What's my sales pipeline? How many deals have we closed? What is our sales cycle? Because we don't have reliable data because we haven't done the basics. We haven't set the foundation and addressed the fundamentals. Um, with that said, I'm curious, as you've worked through this in your career, what's the first time that you got that proverbial seat at the table and rose above you know, running reports? Um, and got a chance to sit down with the executive team and really explain to them what's going on in the business and how did you get that seat at the table? Sure, so part of this is, um, is establishing that fundamental baseline. So getting uh, the data, I would say the core pieces of data organized and reported upon and then sort of tracked in order to give yourself kind of a, a step from which to, to build upon. Um, but once you get past that point, it's really being able to provide advice um, sort of being the consigliere to maybe the sales leader or the CEO or the CFO um, and bringing something to the table that they're not able to see on their own. And I think, well, we'll get into this in a little bit, but I think it doesn't take a whole lot of data um, and a whole lot of analysis in order to get that place. It just requires the right pieces of information. So once you have that information, um, more or less figuring out how to draw um, trends and anomalies to impact on revenue and sort of answering the so what that goes along with doing the analysis on revenue operations kind of uh, metrics. Um, and then just being able to craft a message around, we're noticing this is different than something that happened in the past. I drove, I dove two or three levels deeper um, and we'll talk about how to do that. Um, and I figured out, you know, I, I have three ideas for ways that we could adjust things in our day to day that could have an impact on driving more revenue and correcting or doubling down on that thing that we're noticing that's an anomaly. Yeah, I think that that's such an important point, you know, especially for people in RevOps, especially a junior in their career that are just getting inundated with requests all day. And somebody says, hey, can you run this report for me? It's so easy to just run that report and send it to somebody and leave it at that and not really looking for that, that non-obvious insight, digging layers deeper and finding the thing that that leader really wants to know rather than just saying, yep, here's the report that you asked for. Yeah, I, I, that's that's the name of the game. I think that's what separates just a report writer from sort of an analyst and somebody who's going to kind of bring advice to the table. Uh, I think that's when you start, you know, leveling up and adding a lot more value. 
Absolutely. Well, let me not interrupt your flow too much unless you go on to the next thing you want to share. Sure. I, I think the most important thing right now is to just like we teased it a little bit. So what what are these key uh, pieces of data that you want to start tracking? So um, you want to think of revenue operations, and this is what sets the revenue operations apart from CS ops or marketing ops or sales ops just on their own is sort of the end-to-end -end flow. So um, I liken this to a tube of toothpaste. You know, you want to start on one end and go to the other um, and do it in a consistent way. So what, what I see people doing that kind of sometimes results in them falling down or having gaps uh, in their methodology is the, the report on marketing or the report on uh, bookings or the report on renewals, but they won't get the interconnecting pieces between the different groups of the business sort of mapped out in a flow. Um, and so what you're gonna to wanna to start with is that initial part of the funnel. And I'm, what I'm prescribing here is generally for small and growing companies that maybe are starting new or don't know where to begin. Um, we need to have some metric tied to lead volume, lead generation. Um, ideally, you're gonna have multiple metrics tied to lead generation, but if you have something as simple as a baseline number of leads generated, you, you could the proverbial MQL there, um, SALs, SQLs, et cetera, are different, different flavors here. It doesn't what really do those mean. acronyms mean, Joel? Yeah, yeah, yeah listening? So a marketing qualified lead, um, the traditional tactic there is to have some sort of uh, scoring methodology. For example, you have um, leads that you're tracking with uh, uh, activities in addition to that, where you can sort of tell how many touch points they've had or interactions they've had or intent that they've had regarding your products and services. Maybe they've come to the website and downloaded a piece of content. Maybe they've attended a webinar, et cetera. And eventually you accumulate a certain number of points and uh, at some point trigger a, a, a notice to people to go, hey, reach out to this person. They're showing a lot of uh, intent for lack of a better term. Um, that's the classic example. I know there's a big shift going on in, in how we're tracking our lead flow right now and how much uh, things that have intent um, are being monitored, et cetera, et cetera. But I wanna pair all that back and kind of just get down to the fundamentals that the first thing we need to do is track lead volume in some way to start establishing a baseline of what that looks like, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I'd love to dive into this debate just for a, a moment. For anybody that's not familiar with this, the debate is basically this. You want to track your lead volume. And so you have this marketing qualified lead, which is what Joel just described. And it's somewhat arbitrary. We say, okay, somebody hit the pricing page and downloaded two white papers. And so now they're a qualified lead. Now, what do we do with that? We go and we hand that to the sales team and the SDRs make 15 phone calls and they try to convert that into a sale. If we stop there and we say, okay, let's hand that MQL over to sales. We hit our number. Great. Marketing is working. That is short-sighted. That's where the debate is, that we're not looking through further into the funnel, into the rest of what Joel's about to go into. I won't steal your thunder there. And so we can't see what's actually working and what's not because we have an arbitrary score that determines our success or failure. And we're sort of living in this silo. And so what I would say to that is I agree with you, Joel, like we should be tracking marketing qualified leads as long as we don't stop there. Absolutely. And, and, what I think you'll find, and I'm hopeful, hopefully portraying here, uh, eventually when we get to it, is that 
it's really about establishing a baseline. And then by monitoring baselines, you can sort of tell the relationship between different points in the funnel. And you'll be able to diagnose or at least point to what portion of the funnel is, let's say, underperforming or a shift has happened there where we can identify it and then we can make corrective action. And it's that identification and deep dive into figuring out what a corrective action would, would look like that can be the basis for your first uh, attempt at really substantive insight, insight creation. So um, I'll just keep I'll just keep rolling here. So we we're looking for our marketing funnel at one point and having a metric around that. So I'm just suggesting capture a metric that's that means something to you and your business. Um, and MQL is a good one. Let's let's go with MQLs. Um, but obviously you want to do multiple things. You want to do it in each channel, et cetera, et cetera. But we're going to start some. The next thing that you need to do is opportunity creation. Now. People open opportunities at various points in the funnel. Um, that it, I am agnostic to which, which point in the funnel you want to open that up. Um, as long as you do it consistently, and this is where the question of do you have a methodology established for your business becomes so, so, so important. Because if you don't, then you're going to have people opening opportunities when they feel like it. Or if they've not been enabled and taught how to do it, they're going to open opportunities when they feel like it, it's not gonna be sort of this rigorous methodical approach to things and you need it to be because if you don't, then the data point is gonna flash all over the place up and down and you're not gonna get a consistent conversion rate from lead flow into opportunity creation, which is kind of that first bridge um, into the, the data set that'll drive insights later. Yeah, there's a lot I'd agree with there. I do think that in most circumstances, especially for uh, a sales a sales motion B2B SaaS company, we should be looking at close rates of between 20 and 30% or higher. And so if we're creating opportunities and they're closing at 5%, my first question would be, what's going on here? And what that probably means is exactly what you're saying, that there's not a sales methodology, that we don't have clear criteria for when deals need to, what deals need to what deals require in order to enter the pipeline. And so we don't have rigor in our pipeline management process, which then makes it really difficult for marketing to see what's working and what's not because they generate leads that then get converted into opportunities that then are mismanaged. So we have this really clear criteria for, okay, a lead score of X means that it's an MQL. We could debate that until we're blue in the face. And then we have a very clear entry criteria for something to enter our sales pipeline. And I would argue that that entry criteria should result in a close rate of at least 20 to 30%. We can refine it from there, but now we're starting to see like what is actually going into the sales pipeline and becoming something that is really worth the effort that sales needs to make in order to close that deal and the cost that's associated with that to the organization. I, I agree with that. There is one caveat though. And I'm not saying this is the right way or the wrong way to do it. Some organizations will open an opportunity earlier in the funnel. So in sort of what we would, most people would deem is still within the marketing realm of the world. And so having a 25 or 30% close rate on something that's up channel, um, is probably not as likely. It would be significantly less than that. But the key to understand is that like, it's the same thing, regardless. If you open it up channel, let's say you open it at MQL stage, which I've seen done. I don't know if that's the right way to do it, but people do that. Um, then you're going to have a lower conversion rate, but that's equivalent to the conversion rate 
to uh, the opening of an opportunity times the close rate. So just know that there are all kinds of moving pieces, but in reality, there's just one flow end to end, whether you chop it up or if you prefer one, one way of looking at it or another, as long as you're capturing the different points in the pipeline, that's what's really, really important. I think that's a really great point to make. And so like when I worked at Salesforce, we did that, but we would call pipeline, something that's part of the pipeline, a stage two opportunity, right? So stage one means it may not have that 20% plus close rate because it's not yet qualified. We don't know if it's real. And so it's not considered part of the pipeline, even though it is an opportunity in Salesforce. Yep. Yep. So when, when Eddie's talking about a baseline, and I do think that is a really good baseline, let's say 25% is our target there. Um, from qualified opportunity, whatever stage or, or point in the process that means to you and your business to close one, that is a pretty good, that is a pretty good baseline. I agree with that. Cool. Um, before you keep going, like you had sure. talked a little bit about breaking things down by channels. Um, mm -hmm. One of the biggest things that I'm increasingly a believer of is being careful not to blend all of your marketing leads together and say, okay, great. We have a conversion rate from MQL to uh, SQL, uh, SOL of, you know, X percent. Okay, great. Well, what is the conversion rate with this channel with, you know, this social media channel versus paid ads versus this, that, or the other? What is our breakdown from high intent versus low intent? What I mean by high intent would be somebody that goes to the website and clicks a, a button to book a sales call, book a demo, et cetera, versus somebody that like downloaded a bunch of white papers. We're going to see really drastically different conversion rates there. Um, I did a podcast with Channing Ferrer who ran sales operations at HubSpot a month or two ago. And he talked about how they took all of those concepts and then put them into various buckets so they just had four different buckets that met different criteria where the people that raised their hands went into one bucket, the people that hit the pricing page went into another bucket, and then everybody else were kind of two other buckets that sales never, never called on. Because, you know, as you can imagine, HubSpot puts out a lot of content. So they get a lot of people hitting their website and they get a lot of like people that are above a lead score threshold. But they found in looking at these buckets that those never really converted to sales and it wasn't worth sales following up on. Mm -hmm. And these are examples where you can drill deeper into the marketing qualified leads to really understand what's going on. And if you don't do that, it's really easy to miss the forest of the trees and say, okay, like we have a good conversion rate here because we're blending the things that are working and the things that are not working together. That's absolutely right. Um, the, the idea that I'm trying to tease out here is imagine you've got a baseline of let's say a 5% conversion rate. I don't know what it is. Let's, let's put a number on it. If the conversion rate goes up or the conversion rate goes down versus a baseline that you've had, you know something is happening. One of the most likely things is a change in one of the channels or one of the methodologies that you have for getting someone through the funnel and maybe not the other. Or the other most common thing is a composition change. So you've got more of one thing and less of another. So those are the first two things that you would sort of test after noticing a change in the status quo. And that's gonna lead you down the path of why this? Okay, maybe you have a composition change in your funnel. Okay, why did that happen? Well, then you go to the campaigns maybe that you were running and then you go, why, that? why did that happen? Or why was that campaign good or bad? Um, and so you start going down the rabbit hole, but the first thing you got to do is establish that sort of initial baseline of what normal looks like or what good looks like, maybe. Um, and then you can monitor it 
And that's going to give you eyes on, once you have this all mapped out, it's going to give you eyes on what is the state of my funnel at all times. And having that in front of you is, is kind of like the dashboard that you have in the world. That's Imagine someone sitting in NASA and looking at the big screen with like 25 different views of the world. And, you know, the ship is halfway to the moon and, you know, engines are a go and comp communication systems are working. It's like the exact same thing. You want to build this NASA NASA view of the world. Um, and these are the basic, basic components that get you there. I mean, how many leads do am I, how many MQLs, how many leads do I have coming in? It's pretty basic stuff. There's so much you can draw off of that. So many yeah. conclusions. And you raised, you raised such an important point, right? Because if we don't have that baseline, if we don't have clear definitions of what means what, then when we go to analyze the data and we say, oh, we have this many MQLs, whatever, but this came from here and that came from there it's really easy to kind of be all over the place and not be able to draw any conclusions because we don't have that baseline. Maybe the baseline is wrong. And we say, well, an MQL is anything that has a lead score of 100. Like we, we talk about this a lot with customers. It's like, well, how do I build out my lead scoring methodology? I don't know. It's trial and error. There's not like a perfect science to this that you're going to get it perfectly right on the first go. You're going to have to build that look at the results and then iterate upon it. If you even believe in the concept of lead score and some people, including sales ops at HubSpot don't, right? So if you have that baseline, then you have something you can actually analyze the data and say, okay, we generated a thousand MQLs that met that specific lead score that was based on 30 points for the white paper and 20 points for hitting the pricing page or whatever. And did that work? Did those actually convert into a sales qualified lead or sales qualified opportunity? And then did any of those ultimately close into revenue? Yeah, and what I actually um, might not be intuitive, but um, there's a lot of lead sources that are outside of marketing. You know, you think about um, your business development team or the stuff that the reps are prospecting on their own. They're essentially generating leads and contacts, basically getting people through the funnel in sort of a different way to get to that sales qualified opportunity. So what we're really looking at here, or what we will eventually get to look at here is, you know, okay, maybe your MQLs are not converting at a very high clip. Okay. What are maybe some things that you would do as a business leader about that? Well, maybe we, we need to raise the score. That's something that people have done in the past. You know, we go from 25 points, now they need 75 points to become become an MQL. Okay. Does that result in them converting at a rate that has a, a big enough value on it? So at the end of the day, we're actually going to be able to look at what's the average booking that comes from each of these channels and sort of work that back so we know what each of these different leads is worth. Okay. If your value of that lead is not high enough, well, you need to qualify it more or do a better job of funneling people through through better content, et cetera, so that they opt out if they're not actually potential customers um, and more people that are your potential customers, your ideal customer profile are opting in and you get that value up higher and higher. Well, that's always in competition with what the reps are prospecting on their own and what the BDRs are bringing in. And so if you find out, for example, by measuring all these things, that the value of the thing that your BDR is bringing in is 10 times the value of the thing that marketing is bringing in, and, there's, and you've tried everything in marketing, well, hire a bunch more BDRs. It's all about basically getting the revenue worked back to the most efficient input channel and then monitoring it through the system so that you know how to maximize each of the different points in the, in the entire flow so that you get maximum revenue efficiency at the end of the day. 
You know, Joel, I don't want to take us off track, but I wrote an article a month ago or so on our newsletter about the all-bound model and how I believe, it, and I think there's certainly exceptions to this, but for the most part, I've never understood why we separate inbound and outbound. Because in my mind, inbound, somebody that raises, should be somebody that raises their hand and says, I'd like a, a meeting with somebody. I want a demo. I want to talk to sales. It makes perfect sense for me that for that to be separate. But when we take the other 99% of inbound leads that is so typical in, in most uh, B2B SaaS companies, and all this is, is people that are going to the website and downloading a white paper. How is that different from that cold call list that we just exported or uh, installed from Zoom Info? What's the difference? Like we have the, are these people our ideal customer profile? Are they the right buyer persona? Are they willing to talk to us? We're making a bunch of cold calls either way. So why are we treating these two things as separate? Um, I think there are other things to think about when you're talking about inbound versus outbound. Um, I, I won't go too down too far down the rabbit hole here, but so for example, um, I've always felt hand raisers should go to salespeople directly. You just figure out what territory they fall into and you route them appropriately for the rest of them. You know, you've got an MQL, let's say. They certainly have awareness at a level that a general outbound may not have. Um, and so you maybe have an easier conversation, um, but I don't see there's a, I don't honestly see there being a whole lot of difference. I, I just think that people that are MQLs will by logic and definition be slightly further down the funnel and you won't have to overcome as many hurdles and just educating who I am and maybe what my product does. But it doesn't mean that they're necessarily like ready to buy. It doesn't mean they are necessarily your ideal personas and ideal customer profiles. I think you still have to put the same filters on them and prioritization on them that you would for just general outbound work. You should be prioritizing everything. It should not just be spray and pray. I don't think that's a new idea, but just it shouldn't be spray and pray. Um, so I, I don't see a reason necessarily why the same people might not just treat them very similarly, very similarly. I think yeah, there was a question here, Eddie, as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's just showing up as RO. Uh, if you want to jump on, you can ask your it's, question. It's Rich. Um, sorry about that. And hey, Joel, Rich. thank you for that. That was uh, very helpful. So I guess my, my question is, in the examples that you provided, um, would RevOps in that case fall under sales or marketing because I can see each team being responsible for aggregating that data, right? So, mm -hmm. um, but then, you know, taking it one step further, I guess, you know, biz dev would be responsible for, you know, a certain type of metric, right? And marketing would be responsible for, you know, their own attribution measurement. So wanted to just get your views on that. Sure. Um, I'm going to parking lot the attribution question because that is an entire episode onto its own. Um, I have very strong feelings about attribution, but um, your question is a really, really good one and a pretty common one. So who should uh, revenue op operations be reporting up to um, or reporting to, uh, I believe is what you said. Um, you're going to report to everybody, like as in you're going to report out your findings and to everyone. Like the intention of revenue operations is to have one end-to-end -end flow that everybody has visibility to and that you're driving changes and improvements to the business through one view of the world. 
Um, that's the remit of revenue operations, and that's why it's different from sales ops or marketing ops or CS ops. It's sort of a higher order function that aligns everybody ideally and drives improvements in revenue, regardless of where those pot potential improvements in revenue could be. Now, in my experience, I've I've only rolled up to two different leaders as far as like organization organizational structure, and I'm I think that may have been your question, but please correct me if I'm not um, going down the round the right path here. Um, I've reported to leaders of sales and I've reported to the CFO. So okay. I've never reported to a marketing leader. What, go ahead, sorry. No, I, I was just saying, okay, I was following you. Yeah, um, so I think no matter who you report to, I think the job should be the same. The politics will be a little bit different. So the job of being able to monitor the entire revenue side of the business, kind of like a a junior COO, so to speak, right, is um, you're going to have to be able to sit down at the table with a bunch of people with disparate um, intentions, disparate goals, and you're going to have to get them to agree on what reality is and kind of uh, discuss with them maybe some things that are not not good about their the team's performance. So, for example, if we found that our leads were underperforming, I'm going to have to go in front of a bunch of people with the leader of marketing and we're going to have to talk about why lead performance has dropped, fallen off. And that's a tough conversation to have. Um, the same thing happens when you're reporting to uh, sales and you have to say, sorry, you're, our salespeople are behind quota. They're not doing enough activity. It's not generating enough pipeline. And you know we think people are going to miss their number this year. You're, that's a tough conversation. Okay. Now, well, how do we, how do we make uh, good things happen? It really shouldn't report who you, or it shouldn't matter who you report to. However, you have to understand as the revenue operations person that if you're coming to the table and you're reporting to sales and you call out marketing, it's going to look like potentially sales is picking a fight with marketing. That's just the way it is. That's, that's human nature, human politics. So what I would suggest is if you ever come to um, a broader forum and you're bringing bad news, then you need to do two things. The first one is to get a conversation with the leader of marketing ahead of time or the leader of sales, whoever's bad news it is, and talk to them about that and say, hey, we're noticing the thing. I'm due to give a report on Friday. Let's get together on Wednesday and let's talk about what we're seeing and maybe some things that we can bring so that when we get to that conversation on Friday in front of the larger group that we've got, yeah, we've recognized this is a problem. Marketing person, the salesperson will always go, well, are you sure the data's right? So you're going to go back and you're going to validate the data with them. And then the next thing you're going to do is come up with two or three ideas for ways that you can make it better. And so you come to the, the, the meeting with not just the problem, but with the solution. And, you know, I think everybody's, you know, no worse off uh, and there aren't any hurt feelings and everything seems to be above board. Um, I will say that my argument for revenue operations reporting to the CFO is very similar, is that you are able to avoid some of these things because part of your job is to shine light on the areas where people are doing great but also where they're not doing necessarily so great and if you're outside of the revenue organization if you don't have a cro that oversees everything because i think that's probably the best place to put it if you don't have that then i think a, a coo or a cfo makes a lot of sense so you can be a neutral party helpful thank you sure um I forget where we were going. Uh, we, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Half. We're, we're, we've got our opportunities open. So I'll just pick it up. I'll pick it up there. 
Um, okay, so we've gone from the marketing funnel, very simplistically lead, lead flow into opportunities opened. Um, the next things that we wanna do is we wanna make sure that we're tracking closed deals, of course, but all the different stages on the, on, on the way there. And that's gonna differ what we track based on the organization that you have. I personally love the idea of not only having stages, but also exit criteria for each of those stages based on the methodology that we're teaching our salespeople to use. So if they have to do certain things to qualify an opportunity, that should, that should be tracked in the CRM, in my opinion. Um, if they're, and, and I'm not saying 25 things, I'm saying like maybe three things that they need to do at each stage. Um, you know, if, if we need to have a proposal approved at a certain point, if we need to go um, and conduct a certain type of meeting, um, if you have to have a mutual action plan or a mutual project plan with the customer to drive, you know, timelines, et cetera. If there are all these different things, you want to have those mapped out, in my opinion, and have them included in your flow. And so that you can sort of monitor not just conversion points at stages, but if you really need to dive into it, conversion points at the various sort of sub-stages within the stages. Um, I think that's that's pretty valuable. Um, Joel, this is I wanted to add to that. I think one of the things that's so powerful about that, not just for RevOps, but for the actual sales team, is that what I found in my career as a salesperson, I was an AE at Salesforce for three years, and I've been selling for literally over 20 years since, since I was in college. When you go through a sales process, typically step one takes a lot less time than step two, which takes a lot less time than step three, et cetera. For example, you can do your initial qualification call with an inbound prospect in 15 to 30 minutes. The next call, that discovery call might take an hour. The demo, especially when I was at Salesforce and we had to customize everything, could be two, three hours of time investment to prepare for it, then deliver it, follow up on it, et cetera. And then of course you have all the follow-up in between. So if you think about like this from an investment perspective and how you as a sales rep or you as a sales leader or even a CEO are investing your selling time, then the further you get through that sales process, the more time is invested there and so if you're not carefully measuring, are we actually about to take this next step where I'm going to triple my time investment and the customer is doing the same. So really like what you're doing is both the customer and the, the seller have to agree. Yep. We're going to go and double down on our investment uh, to go explore this further. And that's why I think like measuring these stages can be really powerful in not just helping the organization, but also the individual sales rep to think about like, how am I managing my time? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, it also should prompt the question that if you're finding that your sellers are spending an inordinate amount of time early on, you know, maybe you're, you've designed a methodology where your first meeting is a qualification and a demo and, you know, a further, like, and let's say it takes three or four hours, that may not be the best way to organize your sales cycle, for example. Um, there is also a, a future, like if we put our, our future proofing hat on, there's a huge reason why I like to have these things. Someone might feel they're overkill, but I, I like to have these things tracked in the CRM on the stages as criteria. Literally, you cannot progress to the next stage unless you complete these two or three things is because we're gathering data that is then going to inform the AI-driven models that we run later around forecasting. It, even without AI, you can also run models that help you to forecast based on these stages. So 
there's a lot of power that you're going to get later on. Outside of just the basic insights that I'm proposing today, you're going to get a lot more value later on by tracking and having as big a data set as you can around tracking all the different things on the way to close. Yeah, I love that as well, because what you're touching on is balancing out this need to get as much data as you can for the benefit of RevOps and executives with also maximizing your sales rep selling time. So if you ask for 20 things, A, you're not going to get it. B, your reps are all going to like, you know, mutiny and like leave. Um, And then I don't remember what C is, but I'm sure there's other downsides (laughs) here. There are are Um, a lot of downsides. Yes. You don't, don't do 20. Do not do 20. Do, do you, two or three things and make them simple. Exactly. And at the same time, like if you're sort of like too afraid to ask your salespeople to do a little bit of admin work, then you're going to end up wasting a lot of precious resources on inefficient process. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and it's a really good way to drive adoption. If I know as a rep, I cannot close something unless I put together a mutual project plan with the customer and then we train them on it and actually do the enablement around that. It just like locks the the adoption in. Um, they're going to get used to doing it. Oh, I darn it! I have to go back and I have to make sure that project plans in place. Then I'll remember next time. It's like it's just a sort of self fulfilling uh, circle here that we want to we want to start to engender. But there are benefits to it, right? And the benefits to it are a, a lot better insights into the business. And in, and and I haven't mentioned this specifically. As you're you're tracking the volume of the 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 whole flow from marketing to op creation to op closure and the stages in between. Um, maybe the exit criteria is a little too much for you right now. You're still kind of getting your feet wet. That, that's okay. That's okay. Make sure you're time stamping as many of these things as possible because we're also going to want to make sure that we do cycle times between these different things. And that's going to be one of the things you're going to want to report, measure, and read out on uh, on the regular because. Right now, what I've seen is that we can be very, very good at figuring out what the likelihood of something is to close from every single point along the way. But getting the timing right is the hardest nut to crack these days. It's just the sales cycles, we've seen them elongate a lot in the last couple of years. Um, we've seen them people get really, really bad at forecasting. People are just generally bad at forecasting if they're trying to put a bit of a finger in the air around it. Um, so getting cycle times locked down as well as early as possible is also going to give you a data set that you're going to use later. Yeah. And the last thing I'm going to dive into is uh, workflow in Salesforce, but it doesn't do that out of the box, at least not in a way that you can report on it easily. And so unfortunately you have to go in and do some, uh, some funky stuff in Salesforce to get those timestamps the way you want them. Yeah. And there's a limitation in the number that you can have. So, you know, timestamp the key important things, uh, not just everything that you have. Um, all right, so we've got ourselves to close one. Um, and then I'm going to suggest a couple of different things. Obviously, you're going to want to have basic metrics to close one. You know, um, what's the average deal size? Um, what's the average ARR within that? Because I think a lot of people on the, on the phone today are uh, selling recurring revenue business. Um, and then you're going to want to have like renewals generated to actually track the renewal, which is an opportunity in a cycle unto its own. Do not forget the post-sale aspect of this. Um, and there are a couple of things on renewals that I would want to track. Um, mainly the key thing that people don't capture is the, what was the up for renewal amount within that renewal? So essentially, if you copy forward the amount from the, from the close one deal in terms of ARR, in terms of recurring business, 
that's the business that you're going to want to renew, right? So just track it. You can do some workflow things and maybe some CPQ things around getting that done. I don't think you necessarily need to do that, especially in an, in an early stage company that maybe doesn't have that many renewals to do. You can easily look back, have someone look back, fill out what was the amount up for renewal. And from that point forward, you're just trying to track the closure of that renewal. Um, but what, what, what that will get you, you're going to get a lot of great things. Um, one, what is the for renewal amount? <laughs> I, I think that's, if you don't have subscriptions in your business, that's the easiest way to do a roll-up field to see what is my current business under contract. And that's a huge thing. You can do that at the account level and then roll that up. Then you can slice that by, by industry, by vertical, by revenue size, by headcount, et cetera, whatever way makes sense for you. But having that offer renewal amount rolled up is going to be pretty great. Um, the second thing is that you're going to be able to compare that to what was the one amount and what was the lost amount of renewal. And that's going to give you net revenue retention because you know what was up for renewal, you know what we closed one, and you know what we closed lost. And so closed ones plus closed lost divided by up for renewal, that's your revenue retention at renewal. And then the only difference between that and um, like actual, it's more like gross revenue retention. I was about to say like yeah. what you're describing. Yeah. The net, net revenue retention, sorry, is that plus the uh, expansion is an upsell that you have. So you can get to component pieces that allow you to do these, these key fundamental metrics around a renewal business. So I want to just reinforce the point that you made a few minutes ago that none of this is, a, is, is crazy advanced. Like we haven't mentioned any external tools to Salesforce. We're not talking about AI and machine learning. We're talking about having a basic process and having the fundamentals in place to define what is a marketing qualified lead, what is a sales accepted lead, what is a sales qualified opportunity, what is the entry or exit criteria to go from stage one, two, three, four, five, et cetera. And then what happens on the renewal? And then of course we alluded to, but did not mention having actual expansion opportunities post-sale, which mm -hmm. would get us from gross uh, revenue retention to net revenue retention, meaning that gross revenue retention, as you described, is the difference between what we had up for renewal and what we actually renewed. And then if you add in whatever expansion deals you close, you now have your net revenue retention, right? Mm -hmm. I'm not messing That's, that up, am no, I? No, you, you've got that right. You've got that exactly right. Yep. And so we've got some pretty basic stuff that we can just run in Salesforce almost out of the box. And I think the key here that I want to dive into with you, Joel, and I know you wanna dive into this too, is that we can get a lot of insights just from this basic information. So how do you do that? How do you go layers deeper instead of just going to the executive and saying, hey, like, here's what we closed, here's our NRR. How do you go a few layers deeper? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I, I want this to be simple and I think you can get 90% of a world-class organization by just measuring these things. I mean, lead volume, opportunity volume, stages, close rate, uh, and the renewal cycle with, with expansion business as part of either your sales cycle or your renewal cycle, depending on how you view it. But reality is it should be a separate opportunity and tracking it is just as important as the stages along with it that are just as important as a net, no, net new logo sale. Um, now, when you've got all of that stuff, think about, think about how you are able to diagnose problems in the business now from that. So you need a baseline. Fair enough, but it doesn't take that long to, to generate a baseline. And it may be very easy for you, depending on what the, the sales cycle is of your business or the volume that you're doing. But what I would do is I would have those things in place and I would start reporting on them 
for a period of time until you feel like you get a data set. And then once you have that data set established, then you need to report that out. So trends, um, are things increasing or decreasing, et cetera. That should be part of a reporting package that you then bottle up and send out once a week, once a month, whatever. Um, okay, great. That's that's not too complicated. Um, you're going to get a lot of cachet actually from from just being consistent about applying that stuff and sort of calling out the trends that you're seeing. Now, that's it's not complicated again. It's it's fairly basic, but um, people aren't used to having this all at their fingertips. Especially if you can get this in sort of a visualized medium, they're going to love it. Okay. You mentioned going a level deeper. Here's where we need to put our scientists hats on because what we're dealing with is really a tool that combined with the scientific method is gonna give us the insights that are really rich and valuable for the business. And let's go through an example. Um, our average, our, our, sorry, our average monthly bookings went down. Okay, we noticed that's, that's happening. We've got a fairly consistent flow other than that. And suddenly our bookings drop. Oh my gosh, there's so many reasons that bookings could have dropped. Um, your average sale price went down or your volume of sales went down. Within just that bookings metric, one of those two things is happening or maybe both of those things are happening, right? Logically, like there's no other, there's no other option. You sold less stuff or you sold stuff at a lower price. Now you can sell more stuff at a vastly lower price, but you, you get the gist. Like, there's only a few things that could happen, but that leads you to another question. Let's say the average price went down. Okay, we're sold the same amount of stuff, the average price went down. Why is that? There could be a bunch of different reasons, okay? Maybe the composition of what you were selling, you started selling cheaper products as opposed to the more expensive products that you're used to selling. Perhaps you are discounting more than you ever have. Perhaps um, you're seeing some salespeople discount, but other ones not. And so you can kind of just like start peeling the layers of the onion back, use the data that you have, and you're going to have it to answer the questions like, is everybody discounting more than they have before? Or is it just that one person? And just continue to ask the why or go a further question and a further question, a further question until you don't actually know the answer anymore based on the data. And then it's time for the hypothesis. So let's say we get to the point where we notice that a group of people are discounting more than they have in the past. Let's say it's your enterprise team, sales team. Why is that happening? Maybe you aren't quite sure. Maybe you start talking to people and the hypothesis is that they need to discount stuff because a new market, uh, a competitor has entered the market and they're undercutting you on price. Um, our hypothesis is that if we keep prices the same as we always have, that we would lose a bunch of business. Okay, maybe that's an experiment that you could run. See if it has an effect. Or maybe the hypothesis is that if we lower our prices, our win rate's gonna go up so much that's gonna cover the, the losses that we have. Okay, run, a, run an experiment on that. It's sort of like chase the why as far as it'll go, peel back the layers of the onion, and you're gonna find um, at least one hypothesis that you can test and then go out and, and test the thing. Now, if your business is big enough and you have enough volume, you may be able to do that really relatively rapidly. But I would suggest that before you go and you, you run something, you look at what the dynamics of your business are. Maybe you don't have enough volume that a, an experiment is going to give you a statistically significant sample rapidly enough. And maybe there's something else that you could check. Um, talk to your leader of the sales team. Talk to your leadership. Present this at a group 
uh, forum and have them debate about what is the best path forward. And then you can kind of get the consensus that you need to do something that's maybe a little bit less scientific and a little bit more, um, I don't know, analog. The way that, the way that you would just try to try to do something and see what what sticks. This brings up such a good point, Joel. We all love like quantitative data, but what about qualitative data? What about the things that we're actually hearing verbally from our customers? Things we get like in you know. Um, a form on the website that generates that MQL that says, how did you hear about us? And that's an open text form. Or we're asking people on the sales call, or we're talking to them about what competitors are you looking at? I mean, in your scenario, you might be able to get a lot of stuff from the hard data, but you might also say, okay, we had five, five sales cycles against this competitor. And they told us the reason they chose the competitor was A, B, or C. They told us it was because of price. So they told us it was because they had these three features that we don't have. Well, you're not going to win a deal by discounting if that's not what the customer values. So I'd actually be curious how you think about layering in the qualitative information into this quantitative analysis, especially when you don't have a large number of data points. Well, what you, what you described was qualitative in nature, but it led to, to the actual data, right? So you had a survey that you asked them what, why they said they, they went with the competitor and they, you capture that in a survey and now you have data that like the most common thing here is price discounting. So that's an actually perfect example of what you do uh, in this situation because you are always, if you're doing this right, you will always run yourself up a cul-de-sac. That's what, that's what a hypothesis test is, right? If, you, if you, you're doing an empirically uh, structured approach to capturing the results of an experiment, right? And you're testing that hypothesis. What you're doing is you're capturing the data in a real life scenario and isolating that as a, as a unique variable that's being tested. Um, so you're always, if you're doing this right, going to run up a cul-de-sac where you don't have the data, and then you have to decide what to do. If you feel like an experiment, and for small and growing businesses, this is probably pretty common. You're going to, you feel like an experiment you're going to do is not going to result in a statistically significant sample that's going to allow you to like absolutely test the validity of, of data, even if you go and capture more data, like a survey, et cetera. Um, then you have to get into a little bit of the art of this. And that's, that's kind of what I would suggest if, if you find yourself in that position is either do the hypothesis, do the experiment, get the data. Okay. But if you don't listen to best practices, you've got a, probably a handful of people on your team that really know the product, really know the market, have a lot of experience in the sales as sales leaders or sales people. You can sort of talk to people and get that qualitative aspect of this that like, no, we picked up on that thing in that conversation. And I think that's what this means. Or I've seen this happen in another industry 15 years ago, and here's what the result was. Maybe we can sort of anticipate that. Um, that's where you sort of, sort of got into the, the qualitative aspect when the data runs out um, and you need guidance in, in a way that you know, maybe the data can't provide. I think that makes a lot of sense. And it's tough because you know, you're sitting down in front of a VP of sales, CRO, CEO in a small startup, and they're looking at this saying, I don't have this large data set. We can't use the scientific method. This all sounds like we're just spending a lot of time like spinning our wheels here. But the challenge is, is that without that, the VP of sales, so to speak, comes to these conclusions based on a very limited number of anecdotal observations. Um, and then maybe that's why they don't have RevOps or RevOps gets treated as systems admin. But instead, they could do exactly what you're describing and dig deeper, 
find a little bit more data, find a few more like anecdotal observations, talk to customers or have salespeople talk to customers or do a survey and do that hard work while the VP of sales is out trying to build and manage the sales team and say, hey, I've uncovered a lot more here. Now we can have a more informed view on mm -hmm. what's working and what's not in the business and how we're investing millions and millions of dollars in our sales and marketing and CS team. And how do we get the most bang for our buck here, especially in 2023 when everybody's worried about the economy and budgets? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's all about efficiency. And I think if you just do these baseline things, you can let the data to kind of show you where to go, but then diving in deeper is where you're, you're providing value. So even, even a good question can have a lot of value associated with it. You don't necessarily have to have the answer. So for example, um, in, the same, in the same scenario, bookings are down. Okay, well, we're winning at the same rate as we did before. Uh, deal sizes are the same as they have before. We look at all the stages of the funnel. They're roughly converting at the same rate. We're opening fewer opportunities. Okay, well, that's, that's a pretty obvious red flag. Why are we opening fewer opportunities? Is there fewer lead flow? Has the conversion rate shrunk? Um, are we seeing a different mix between the different channels of our, of our marketing funnel, et cetera, et cetera. You can start pinpointing things and eliminating things that aren't a problem and start isolating the things that are. So a VP of sales is going to be like, well, my, my bookings are down. I need to take a corrective action on my side. Maybe they don't know where to go. Maybe, maybe someone's telling them that such and such in the sales team is a loose cannon there to cause your problems. Well, they might go investigate that and waste a lot of time trying to, to prove or disprove that. But someone is, is a problem or maybe uh, the CRM is capturing bad data. Maybe that's the reason. And you know, our bookings are actually fine. We're just doing things wrong up here on a processing. Like there's so many places where someone could go and rumors will fill a vacuum of information, right? So you're absolutely right that like, this person is, needs to be over here focusing. They're not going to have their eyes on all this stuff. It's your job to do that. And so you can come to with them with a question of like, we noticed that our, our pipeline uh, creation is down and that has led to our, our bookings being down or hopefully you're getting ahead of it and saying, we anticipate that our bookings are going to be down because our pipeline generation is down. Here are the three or four things that I'm not quite sure which one it is, but here are the three or four things that it could be Let's go dive into that and let's have a conversation with people on that side of the business. And that's really, really valuable. It, it avoids wasted time. Um, and that opportunity cost is, is pretty valuable stuff. So um, there's a lot of power that comes from very, very, very simple pieces of information here. So we've only got three minutes left, especially since I forgot to mention we changed this format to keep it down to an hour for everybody, per your suggestion, Joel. But what have you learned in your experience is the best way to present this to leadership, especially when they're busy, have short attention spans, haven't been in the data for hours or months like you have? Mm -hmm. What have you learned? I think, it's, I think it's that framing it as a, we've noticed that this is a problem where we anticipate this is going to be a problem. Here are the two or three things that we can do or we have tried and we need more information on. And then of these three, of these three things we could do, we think this is the most likely thing to do. What do you think we should do next? So framing it in a very summarized and compact format. And if they ask, you're gonna have all the data available to talk to them about it. But again, when you're speaking with an executive leadership, they don't wanna hear a problem and drop it. They don't wanna hear a lot of data whiz bangery. They don't wanna know about your regression tests and all the analysis that you did. 
Um, maybe maybe later they will, but right now they want to know what's what are what are we seeing as a, a problem or a good or potentially an awesome thing that you want to you know vocalize and let everybody know about. What led us there, and what do we think that we can take corrective action on? And um, what do you what's your recommendation? You always want to come with a recommendation. Beyond that, just you know, if you've got bad news to share, sharing it with the person that you're kind of going to be isolating potentially ahead of time, so that they aren't ever blindsided about anything that you do. Beyond that, just be consistent, be some, be uh, analytical, and summarize it in a format that an executive can can adopt. I love that. Um, I don't know if you watched Jack Ryan, but it, it reminds me of the first episode where um, what's his name from the office is playing a CIA agent, and he's trying to present to his uh, his leader. And uh, he gets down this rabbit hole and starts talking about how it's difficult to connect one SQL database to the next. And as he's mid-sentence, the guy just cuts him off and goes, next. And then this whole team is making fun of him. Like, really? You're talking about SQL queries in the middle of this meeting? And uh, what, you're, you. what you're mentioning really reminds me of that. Um, but anyway, we are now at time. Um, thank you so much for putting this together, Joel. And thank you to our audience for, um, for joining us today and all the qu questions that you brought. I appreciate it. And as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about this stuff. So anytime I can get on here and, uh, and ramble, I very much appreciate it. So thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Joel. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you to everybody in the audience for joining.